Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to another of the Hidden Layers podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. Today, we're joined by Alex Kubo, the VP of e commerce and digital marketing at Burrow, a startup that's reinventing the furniture industry. We're excited to talk about Burrow's mission to offer clever, comfortable, and long lasting furniture to the modern consumer. Alex joined Burrow in 2016 as the company graduated from Y Combinator and led all the company's growth initiatives through launch in April 2017 when he formed, until recently when he formed Burrow's intelligence team and took over e-commerce and digital marketing. He brings a data-first approach to Burrow's innovation, product development, all of the strategic aspects of the business. So Alex, welcome to Hidden Layers. Thanks, Jeremy. So first, I want to start off with this idea that you're a lifelong Man United fan. <laughs> United. Let's talk about that really quickly. Yeah, it's not um, a good topic right now. That's yeah, sure. yeah. Do you think they're going to make it through the champions? I actually haven't been paying much attention to Premier League. But uh, it's, it's a sore subject. They just got knocked out yesterday. Yeah, so it's done. And Tottenham's on top, huh? Tottenham's having a good, say, first half of the season. <laughs> so what's the difference between this season and last season? Last season, you guys did pretty well. Uh, you know, there's, it, it could be any number of things right now, but I think we need a little bit of a shakeup at the top of the organization for things at the bottom of the organization to start working a little bit better together. Oh, well, spoken like a true, true fan. <laughs> so yeah, I remember when Premier League, NBC started covering Premier League and it was, I think it was a big deal for the United States. Do you feel like people in the United States have become more aware and, and, and more able to be fans of Premier League because of that NBC television deal? For, I mean, for sure. It's definitely gotten a lot more exposure, a lot more awareness. People are getting into the sport. They're appreciating it a little bit more. I think there was a tendency in the past for Americans to, you know, want to see some high scores and that sort of thing. But I think that the artistry of the game is, is really taking hold with the American public now I think largely driven by that support from NBC but you know it, there's there's I guess there's the debate whether whether they're true fans or <laughs> just picking a team so they can join the conversation at the lunch table uh, well I mean you know Man United that's like being a Yankees fan you know uh, why uh, he's you know. not starting off well Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> you know you could have picked Chelsea or something like that right well you know, I, it, for me, I could go into a long diatribe around why I'm a Man United fan, but it, it started back in 03 for me on one of their U.S. tours where it, it really opened my eyes to the game. And they really, they trounced Juventus in a exhibition match at Giants Stadium. And I was yeah. hooked, uh, hooked from that moment. Yeah, I think I watched Man United play the all-star team from MLS and destroy mm. them like 12 to 3 one mm. summer. And, you know, it's just it's just a, a different league of, of play. It is. All right. So let's talk about Burrow. Yep. The background on Burrow, the headlines are in 2018, Burrow opened a flagship showroom in New York City. It was named one of the 10 most innovative retail brands in the world by Fast Company. And the Burrow Sofa was named one of the 50 best inventions of the year by time. 
Sofa in Time magazine. I feel like that's unexpected from an invention perspective. What's the deal with that? Like, what is what is this sofa? You know, I I uh, I'm not allowed to buy any furniture for my house. That's a rule my wife <laughs> has given me. So so tell me why this sofa is one of the 50 best inventions of 2018. Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to just generally how furniture has been designed over the last several decades. It's always been just very, very small steps or iterations on existing designs. And a compliance with a model that's that's archaic, that doesn't treat the modern consumer the way that they expect to. You talk about kind of our demographic. We've been raised in the world of Amazon and on-demand services, and we expect a certain level of convenience and speed that the furniture market in large part is just not capable of in its in the system that it's in right now, that it's been in for decades, as I mentioned. And so our approach was to take, number one, a customer-centric view of furniture design, and then number two, just take an innovative approach to some of the elements of the, of the I guess, the, the less sexy parts of, of the industry, like the supply chain, and try to embrace them and, and attack them in, in an innovative way. And our whole challenge was there was really like a, a sort of divide in the market. It was either you get this, you know, flat pack piece of furniture from Ikea that took three hours to assemble with a hex key on the floor of your apartment and ultimately would fall apart when you moved in 12 months or 24 months or whatever it may be. And then the other end of the spectrum is you go to a higher end uh, retailer and you pay insane markups. You pay hundreds of dollars in shipping and delivery fees and there's just it, the, the entire market was kind of rife with inefficiencies. And so our challenge was, is there a way that we can design a high quality piece of furniture in a way that would still accommodate the same conveniences that you get from Amazon or, or, or e-commerce or, or the direct-to-consumer model? And really what that came down to was taking a very innovative approach to uh, product design with the modularized flat pack design using still very high-end materials. So you get a premium quality product, but it gets delivered to you in boxes using standard freight and UPS. So you don't have to take a day off from work to wait for the boxes to arrive or the sofa to arrive to you. It sets up in minutes with no tools. So you're not going through the same pain points of IKEA. And it's built with extremely durable um, and comfortable materials, very high quality materials so that it can last with you from move to move to move since that's what it's designed to do. So I think it was really just just leaning into those customer pain points and like all the things that we just sort of deal with because we think we have to within the high-end furniture market and just taking a different approach to those that I think sort of cracked the nut for us and why you know places like Time are, are recognizing that feat. So, so let's talk quickly about the supply chain thing. For me yep. personally, you know, we as we decorate offices and things like that, for, from a company perspective, not the apartment again perspective, but the, the offices, yep. uh, it just takes forever to get this furniture. Yes. You know? And so how, how have you guys addressed that piece of, of it? Because that's the biggest pain point for me, frankly. Exactly. It's time. Exactly. I mean, that's something that we actually learned early on was like, we, we launched with this hypothesis that we would be the company that the IKEA consumer graduated to when they were done with being, you know, a, a teenager, basically. And it turned out that it, it, the, the, the value props of our brand and our product actually resonated much stronger with the more mature markets. You think about our core demographic now is anywhere between 25 and 40, 45 years old. And that's because they've experienced those pain points that you're talking about right now, where most of the incumbents take on average eight to 12 weeks, like forget COVID, even outside of this environment, they take astronomically long shipping times. 
part of the reason for that is because furniture in the way that it's currently designed in a single piece is extremely expensive to warehouse. And so what a lot of these companies are doing is manufacturing as orders come in, they get basically get put into a queue, then the, the order is constructed, and then it's shipped out. And then you also also have to get a lot of a lot of times a white glove delivery service or something again, added, added expense added time. Our approach with the modularized design allows us to warehouse much more efficiently, and we can stockpile units and components that, that fit together in whatever the customer ends up ordering. So it's not like we have to stockpile a bunch of six-seat corner sectionals and a bunch of love seats. We just manufacture basically arms and seats, stockpile them in boxes, and then are able to fulfill orders with just groups of those componentized boxes. And that just speeds up the whole the whole the whole yeah, system, allows us to fulfill faster. And just because I'm curious, where where does the manufacturing of this stuff actually happen? I I, I remember hearing that North Carolina makes all the furniture in the United States or something like that. Yeah, actually, we, you know, when we first launched the company back in April 2017, U.S. manufacturers wouldn't even give us the time of day. They were they couldn't understand why we would want to uh, flat pack a premium material sofa. And so we actually launched out of Mexico City a, and that was back in 2017, very quickly hit a demand inflection point that that factory could not support. And so we shifted production to Mississippi. And then very shortly after that hit another demand inflection point where uh, Mississippi couldn't support it. And by that time, we had, you know, obviously built up a lot of traction and awareness in the industry, uh, especially among suppliers. And uh, we were fortunate for them to compete for our business and ended up with one of the largest manufacturers based out of North Carolina to support our so primary nomad sofa line. Yeah. You know, as we've continued to branch out into other product categories, we're always looking for the best possible manufacturer for the product. And so our eyes have definitely opened up to alternative suppliers for different categories. So tell us about your role. You've actually had a few roles over the last couple of years, one of them mm -hmm. being the title of head of intelligence. Yep. Now you're the VP of e-commerce and digital marketing. Tell us about what that entails at a company like Burrow. Yeah, so the the intelligence role was was an interesting one. I mean, that was the one that I had right before my current role. And the the thought process there was we had really taken a data first, analytical first approach to marketing and had really uncovered these amazing insights that helped to accelerate the business. And we're kind of almost productizing that that sort of insights engine. And the thought there was, can we apply that same structure of thinking to the rest of the business? And so this intelligence team was formed to help do that, extrapolate that same sort of thinking to operations, customer experience, et cetera. And then as our team began to grow, there wasn't as much of a need for a, a standalone team. And those tools and, and technologies and practices were sort of integrated into the respective parts of the business. And then I rejoined kind of 100% of my time into the marketing and demand side of the business. And where I've sort of nestled in now is, is essentially at the head of all things digital, two primary areas of focus being the digital product, our, our e-commerce store and our digital marketing. That being said, there are a number of other channels that may not, I guess, traditionally be considered digital, but from our perspective, from an analytics perspective and a measurement perspective still fall into that arena. Things like podcast, affiliate, et cetera, that I, I'm still heavily, heavily involved with. Got it, got it. So, so 
talk, I guess, let's let's take a step back and talk about Burrow and its mm-hmm. channels. Okay, yep. so it has a showroom. Does it consider itself really a D2C company that now has a brick and mortar store or vice versa? Talk about that, that history. It's, it's definitely the former. I mean, our, our whole hypothesis was grounded in, in a highly efficient you know, supply and fulfillment chain, and that, that meant going D2C. The showroom is was a gamble, one that paid off substantially and one that will continue to invest in going forward. But it was one that helped to validate the brand. And you know, there's there's still a lot of people that 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 want to touch and feel furniture before they buy it, right? It's a big purchase. I think there's there's obvious examples of companies that came before us that have sort of opened the door for consumers to think about larger purchases um, that traditionally they would go to. Uh, a store to touch and feel before they purchased. And that sort of, again, opened the door for us. But there is still that that huge part of the market that is you know, new to buying furniture online. One of the, the biggest learnings coming out of COVID is basically that it's, it's accelerated the, the e-commerce landscape and opened people's eyes to purchasing all kinds of things that they traditionally wouldn't even really think, out, think about purchasing online. And now it's, it's sort of second nature. So the store was was a bet to sort of fulfill that that need. Number one, from like a direct uh, impact, is actually allowing people in our primary market, which is the New York metro area, to come in to the store, see the furniture, see the fabrics in person, feel them, sit in them, etc. And then an indirect impact is just validating the brand. As I was getting into it just a bit ago, and just having that physical retail presence can help somebody feel more safe and secure about making a purchase like this online. And you can it's actually a measurable impact if you look at the e-commerce conversion rate and how it trends over time relative to the launch of the store within a certain radius of the store. And, and, and so it, it wasn't as much just a hypothesis as, as it was something that the data was actually confirming. So how does the traditional relationship with interior designers and things like that work with with a D2C furniture model? You know, most of our market is not working with interior designers. We definitely get a lot of inbounds from interior designers, which we're, we're obviously very thankful for to establish and build those relationships. But a lot of our, our customers are the do-it-yourselfers. They are the ones that you know, want to try things for themselves the first go. And so the majority, vast, vast majority of our sales are not through, I guess, the design world. And they're, they're really, in, in a true sense, direct to consumer. So that's, it, that's where our primary focus is. So, okay. So that clarifies, you know, the realm of digital marketing, it seems, mm-hmm. for you and Burrow seems to be very consumer focused. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about how how the data of a D2C capability, your website, what you're doing, all that, what do you look for? How do you make decisions with with all that data from a marketing perspective? Yeah, you know, I think first, like taking a step back, like I, I don't think you really need to go high tech to get a competitive advantage. I think there's a tendency nowadays to sort of just opt for the most high tech solution just because you think everybody's doing it. The reality is that you know, oftentimes really simple customer conversations and surveys, like a basic post-purchase survey, can really help define or refine things like product roadmaps, messaging, et cetera. It can be some of the most effective ways to learn and iterate. And again, I think a lot of these really simple things seem to get over 
overlooked these days as people kind of scramble to latch onto the latest technology. And, and these more simple um, and traditional methods of data collection are, can really help give color to the numbers. But aside from like the obvious, you know, table stake stuff like A-B testing, lookalike models, et cetera, we partner with a data machine learning provider that's feeding us real-time models based on customers and leads. And then we activate on these models and channels like Facebook to find that new prospecting audiences, which obviously other than high performance, we tend to look for unique audiences. So very, very minimal overlap with Facebook's lookalikes. And that's where we've really been able to strike a chord, just in forming a model with a different data set than what Facebook is using to uncover those, those incremental audiences and that next customer. Um, dig it, can you dig in a little there? So yep. why, why do you want little very little overlap on their own lookalikes because you're already using their lookalike modeling and you want net new exposures? Uh, exactly. I mean, incrementality is the challenge. I think there's, you know, the last 10 years, everyone's talked about attribution. I'm one of the more pessimistic people about like what is true attribution and, and our ability to close the loop. But incrementality, I think, is the biggest the, the true challenge. And that's, it's really like, why is attribution the question? It's because you're looking for incrementality in that next customer. So making sure that you're getting different audiences and Facebook's not just continuing to optimize towards that same person. That is, that is sort of the name of the game and why you want to supplement your program with these additional data resources. Um, yep. But to be clear, you are using Facebook's lookalike capabilities as, as part of that strategy you have sort of these net new incremental segments. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, you know, Facebook's lookalike models are, are great. They'll continue to churn for us. And there's essentially, besides media costs, no cost to, to use them, right? Right. But the, the, the challenge is, okay, how do we try to find that next group of customers rather than very slowly kind of expanding what that propensity model within Facebook looks like? How do we take that, that, that bigger leap? Yeah, we run into that a lot at Cognitive. That We do this, that type of thing outside of social. We do it for the open web. And mm-hmm. incrementality is something that all of our marketing uh, partners say they want to do. But a lot of them come to us and tell us they do last touch uh, attribution and they, they don't know how to do multi-touch attribution or any touch attribution. And, right. And it's almost impossible to do an incrementality without that kind of sophistication. You know, have you, have you seen that in your own experiences? I, I have for sure. I mean, I think there's an obsession of looking at every little KPI along the value chain and trying to figure out what truly drove it. And I think that's where I get a little bit pessimistic about attribution because I'm coming, I guess, like framing this and putting this in a context, I'm coming from an industry that is a, in a specific part of that industry in sofas where it's a very highly considered purchase. Uh, There's going to be several, several touch points uh, before somebody makes it, makes a decision. It's characteristic of a high degree of comparison shopping. People are clicking around, they're visiting different stores, they're calling different design resources, et cetera. And so there's so much that's happening off their device that your ability to just track that back to one single effort and assign some, I guess, value to that, that point in the chain is, is, is pretty limited. And it could, it, it, if it's not limited, it could actually force you in the wrong direction. 
And that's where you kind of have to take a step back and have this marketing 101 view to help guide a lot of this more high-tech and data-driven approaches that you take, including with attribution. So have you, have you found a partner or vendor, an attribution vendor that is helping you with sort of a multi-touch model? Are you doing that yourself? Or is it this this non-overlapping segment and how you're testing that, you know, the, the, the extent of your incrementality? You know, we do everything in-house from, from an attribution standpoint. I say in-house, but obviously leveraging the, the run-of-the-mill tools that you have available to you, whether it's in-platform attribution or Google Analytics or whatever. But because of the complexity of our funnel, we're also overlaying things like post-purchase surveys, which we're fortunate to have a super high response rate for. And then also just first-party customer interview and customer survey information on top of that, even pre-purchase type stuff. And then the second part of this is identifying what is that primary and maybe secondary KPI that you want to look, look for. I think one of the traps that people can fall into or marketers can fall into is always measuring to the same objective, which by default for a lot of folks is, is a conversion or purchase. I think for a product like ours, it's highly considered that has a longer purchase cycle. You have to get a little bit more thoughtful about what that KPI is that you're measuring towards. So I might be looking for a session from, as a very simple example, from a very top of funnel initiative, or I may be looking for the completion of a certain event, whether it's a subscription or a to our newsletter or, or an add to cart or a product view or something like that, then I'm actually building a program that's disciplined enough to make decisions off of those leading indicators versus everything having to drive to that ultimate conversion event. So how are you tying all of those pieces together? So we talk a lot about uh, full funnel marketing capabilities mm-hmm. with our clients, moving people through the funnel. And traditionally, the way that budgets have been um, set up with agencies and even different agencies is there's top of the funnel advertising, there's bottom of the funnel advertising. They don't necessarily or ever really talk to each other. Have mm-hmm. you tackled that piece where you're where you're running these different levels of the campaigns, but you're trying to really watch these people move through that funnel and, and, and move into the lower funnel campaigns and then change your, change your creative, et cetera. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't look at it on like an individual user basis, but, but we do try to get pretty granular with it and the way we do architect all of our programs. So they're, we're basically, we characterize them as stages from awareness to education to validation to conversion to retention. And each of those were looking for progress from one step to the next. It would obviously be pretty nearsighted to think that everybody's going through those steps in the same order or that they're actually flowing from one to the next. And so you do have to take a bit of a step back and not just rely on that single path to purchase through each of those, I guess, stages and, and be open to the fact that people are, are hitting your website from different directions. They're not just landing on the homepage. You know, you're, you're, you're pushing them all over and they happen to be in a certain you know, part of the funnel that you might not have thought they're starting in. So you do have to get a little, this, this again is where it comes back to that marketing 101, take a step back approach and not get too, too hyper-focused at like an individual level. Let's talk a little bit about all the different touch points you can have from a digital marketing perspective. So you talked mm-hmm. about podcasts, you talked about just different things that are not just digital advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you doing print? How do you measure the offline with the online for a, an advanced D2C company? 
Yeah. A lot of it, again, comes down to customer interviews and customer service. The things that stand out in people's minds, you know, we ran a, there's, there's measurable things like we ran a subway campaign back in late 2018 to help generate fervor for the store that was, was launching. And we were not prepared for the impact that subway generated at top of funnel impact, I should say. And we had, you know, all of the spend or a lot of our spend in our digital platforms getting sucked into the New York Metro because we, we were getting surge of this New York traffic and basically anywhere along the Amtrak from New York. And so that was a, that was a really good learning about how we can pre-plan and prepare ourselves for initiatives like that. And that, these are similar things that we've taken with spot market testing and television, print, as you mentioned, and podcasts is sort of our our go-to storytelling channel at the moment, which oftentimes is, is, is a challenge to, to attribute no matter how many you know, landing pages or codes you give. Yeah, and this does this really tie into you? I think you were quoted in the press as stating that the company can't rely on social media and Facebook in particular as the sole channel. You know, I think a lot of DTC companies are finding this out, especially now as there's a spin of surge in online buying and investment mm-hmm. in D2C. I, I get reports from my contacts in D2C companies where their customer acquisition costs are, are, are higher than their, you know, their LTVs. So, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for furniture with a big purchase like yours, I'm sure there's there's a decent amount of margin for you to to work with. But um, you know, there, there's there's actually there's not. It's it's not too different than most of your D2C brands. I think I, I think that the problem is a lot of marketers are not approaching marketing in an intelligent way. I think everybody is buying into that Casper model, just like buy everything and like yeah. VC money is endless. Right. You know, I joke that startups have just become sort of waypoints for VC money to flow into Mark Zuckerberg's pocket <laughs> because it's so easy to see how much money is being wasted when you talk to early and growth stage companies about their program architecture mm-hmm. and testing strategy, et cetera. And, and we are a hundred percent guilty of that too. In our, in our first six to nine months, I mean, we were in that boat of like our, why is our CAC bigger than our first purchase AOV? Right. right. And like we are, we're also a company that has to be hyper focused on that because we're not a repeat purchase in terms of like high frequency, right? Like people are not buying a sofa every right. couple of months. And so we, we, in the first couple of years of our business, really treated AOV as equal to LTV and had to optimize our unit economics around that. And that was a, a really early and pivotal, pivotal learning that helped us kind of re architect our entire company and, and processes around is that just, yeah, 100% concrete focus on unit economics. And, you know, right now, we're obviously seeing like super outsized returns on that. But even before COVID hit, we were in a much, much healthier position from a business standpoint than we were back in 2017 because of that. So so can you tell our listeners any of the tips uh, on how to control their CAC, especially uh, on Facebook? Yeah, I would say, I mean, one of the, the, the high level things is very early on in the company's uh, development, I think there is a tendency to throw a lot of different darts at the wall. And so people expanded to a number of different channels and they don't ever really get good at any one thing. They're just doing a mediocre job at a lot of things and thinking that that is the way to go about it, right? Our biggest learning was, you know, cutting 90% of the things we were doing and getting really, really good at that one thing, which for us was Facebook and Instagram at the time. 
And this was back, this is about six to nine months after launching. This is late 2017, where we completely scaled back. We brought everything in-house. We, we actually launched with an agency partner because I, I did not have a background right. in digital marketing. My background is, is completely different. My mission, basically, in the first few months of the company was learn everything the agency knows so that we can in-house this. And so eventually we did that. And that's when our, our marketing program really hit an inflection point because I think all incentives were aligned and, and our program got a lot more intelligent. So I think that's, that's step one is, you know, you're going to hear about a lot of companies having success on this channel or that channel. You really have to think about what's right for your customer. And that is, again, like a marketing one-on-one concept is customer journey mapping, understanding who you're talking to, what are the channels that are important to them, what are the messages that are important to them, and finding the right initiatives, whether that's a, a channel or a message type or a creative type that really speaks to that customer. And then when you look in platform, what I would say is like, if you take Facebook, for example, it's balancing the, the budget, the portfolio structure between test and core. So making sure that you're always planning a very rigid and disciplined testing architecture so that you have a high proportion of your spend nestled into this core so that as you're iterating and creating these learnings, you have the ability to take risk without jeopardizing the overall health of the program. I think a mistake that we made early on was like, this is expanding, I guess, a bit outside of Facebook was when we did launch into that subway campaign, you know, that was a bulk of our marketing spend for that month. And that was a huge experiment, completely flipped the efficiency and how our, our marketing funnel was working at the time. And that was a key learning around how to properly structure the portfolio between things that you know are going to churn and the things that you need to take a risk on to find out what's next. And so we've, we've, we've built a much more disciplined architecture over the last few years now, and it's kind of humming along really, really nicely at this point. So you, you said earlier that you partnered with a company uh, that does machine learning. Talk mm-hmm. about the importance of machine learning to your, to your marketing now and where you see it going in the future. Yeah, for sure. So we talked about a couple examples already, right? Like finding that net new prospecting audience I was talking about. We, we use it for market penetration, market momentum studies, using like geo-specific propensity models. We've used ML for showroom sighting using a method called geospatial autocorrelation, which is basically just how much does a group of people look like the ideal customer and how close are they to each other. And we'll continue to use uh, methods like that to help inform our retail expansion strategy as well. But, you know, it's also, it's hard to find a productized platform nowadays that isn't leveraging some level of ML to optimize, whether it's, you know, reviews or CX or something else. But our primary application is definitely on the demand side of the business. One of the areas that we'll look to grow the ML or AI presence and footprint in in our company is things with discovery. So as our product assortment continues to grow, we'll be leaning heavily, more heavier into these technologies for things like recommendations which we're busy laying the groundwork for now, which I think for us is, is the biggest challenge in the road ahead is, you, you, and, and for a lot of these companies, is kind of the, the signature D2C company is like, we you know, figured out the very best, this single product that you can buy. And they, they architect their whole program, their whole brand around this one product. But as companies are starting to learn, you can't just continue to spend VC money and grow your company with negative unit economics around one uh, product. You need to launch new products. You need to increase LTV so your LTV to CAC ratio continues to grow. And the challenge there is, okay, well, you got really, really good at selling one thing. How good are you at clearly and simply and straightforward selling a, a wide assortment of, of products? And that's where the challenge of discovery 
becomes paramount. And that is one area that AI and ML can really help with. I think the, the simplest version of that is, is something like a product recommendation engine. So it sounds like 2021 for Burrow is going to be growing the catalog. Will that catalog be a, an experimentation, you know, test quickly, fail fast type of a thing? Or are you taking a different kind of approach? You know, I, I wish that furniture was structured in a way that we could do that <laughs> more, but you know, it's, it's a very capital intensive business. You're it's, it's, as I mentioned, the margins are not like phenomenal by any means. And so if you do want to have a healthy unit economics, you do need to, you know, buy a significant amount of inventory up front. So it's hard to say that we're going to go into it from an experimental standpoint. How we mitigate that risk is, and, and everything still is experimental to an extent, but how we do mitigate that risk is taking a very customer-centric approach and doing extensive research and studies, first-party data, first-party information, feedback to inform that product roadmap and specific things like design features, like does somebody want storage in the table? Okay, if that same person wants storage in the table, does that look like closed storage or open storage? Do they, you know, what what are the types of homes that these people are living in? Where are these people concentrated? Should we warehouse these things on the East Coast, the West Coast, centrally to, to minimize shipping and logistics expenses? So there's, there's a ton of thought that goes into it upstream of the actual launch event that helps to mitigate these things. And, and we're fortunate that this approach has really made the last year and a half of product launch is extremely successful. And, and the, 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 the velocity that these, these new products are selling with is really remarkable, beating even our own expectations. It would seem, though, that because of the supply chain improvement that you've put through, that, you know, a little bit like a Zara, you can make small quantities of things to test. And then if they start selling well, you can relatively quickly compared to other furniture companies, you know, manufacture more. Is that not the case? Well, I think, I mean, you have to think about it in terms of statistical significance. Like if you take Zara as an example, they are a massive global right. brand that, you know, a small test for them could mean hundreds of thousands of units, right? Right. For us, a small test is like, you know, 20, 30, 40 units. And are we actually going to reach any level of truly indicative significant uh, statistical significance off of a sample set that small? Right. Probably not. We can experiment with, and we do experiment with, you know, interest in like using Instagram stories as like little feelers for patterns, materials, um, et cetera, that, that people like, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more challenging in the textile space to get something right than it is in, in hard goods. And that's where like, it's, it's a lot more driven by taste than it is by function. And that's where we have to get like pretty advanced with, with data collection. Well, thank you very much, Alex. That does it for this edition of Hidden Layers. My guest has been Alex Kubo, VP of e-commerce and digital marketing at the award-winning furniture company, Burrow. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you on the next Hidden Layers in the new year, 2021. Thanks everybody. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.